Welcome to the Macafab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and probe topography. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 338. How's your week been, Stephen? You know, it's it's Tuesday. We record on Tuesdays, and and I got two really good big projects done on the same day today. So you I'm should take the rest of the week off. I'm super happy. I'm I'm you know honestly I'm tempted to <laughs> show up to work. Me. Just show up to work drunk tomorrow. <laughs> I have your wife drop you off. <laughs> I may I may have had a small amount of of whiskey at work with my boss to celebrate two projects being done on the same day that have been uh, over uh, one of them is over two years and one of them is almost two years in the making. And, and Mm. I say done in quotes, like, of course there's always a little tiny bit more polishing to do, but like the hardest thing that has been plaguing us for a while is like done, done. Uh, So yeah. So I won't take the rest of the week off, even though that would be really fun. You can pretend to be at work. <laughs> That's what I do every day. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, my week's been doing pretty good, too. Um, over the weekend, I got a lot of work done on, on Snacky, the snack machine. Um, so I guess, yeah, let's jump right into that. Um, so the firmware is now feature complete in quotes, meaning that, oh, uh mvp is minimal viable product right we had been talking about that last episode we we used it correctly but didn't know what it meant (laughs) yes um minimal viable product not most valuable person or most valuable product or because that didn't make sense but minimal viable product totally makes sense um in terms of so the firmware the firmware is mvp minimal viable product right now um, so everything works. You can, you can, I, I basically made a, it works like a Skippy device, you know, like an instrumentational device talk over a COM port. Um, so you can write to the display, you get, you can query the keyboard, all the other switches and that kind of stuff. You can, uh, vend, uh, from like you type in vend a five and hit enter and then a five vends, uh, a unit. It's kind of nice. cool. Like when I got the vending finally working, like it was like late Sunday. I was just like, oh, finally, it actually does what it needs to do now. You know, I like that. Okay. <laughs> Feature complete or MVP, I guess. Like it's just like when somebody asks you, does it work? You can now say, I yes. can finally say yes. On yeah, that's late what Sunday. it means. You can say yes. 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 <laughs> um, and, uh, so yeah, I wrote a whole bunch of display commands for it now for the screen because basically I'm like I kind of implemented uh, a like a twenty by or a four by twenty character display on this VFD display that I mounted onto it, and I kind of made the interface look like how you would normally talk to one of those kind of character displays. So like you have like right line, you know, right just text. I have uh, like move the cursor around and that kind of stuff. So you can write text anywhere and there's like a clear, there's a home, all that good stuff. Kind of like wrote all those commands out um, and abstracted them a layer away. 
So that's easy for on the uh, PC side to easily just write what you want to the screen. Uh, out of curiosity, so are you you're writing the firmware for all of this? Are you passing it off to someone else to write something else? Yeah, to write the computer for the computer side of it. Got yes. it. Okay, so you had to abstract it and then basically make it simple for them to be able to just crank data into it. Yeah, I don't want them to have to be like, I need to write this serial buffer command to make the screen do this thing. No, just tell me what you want to write to it. And then I will handle that. Move a cursor, display text, put something somewhere, that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, Also also the the nice thing about that as a, as a double E when you're, when you have your hardware, the more you abstract like that, the fewer questions you get asked later. How do I do this? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, but the big thing was on Sunday was getting vending the motors. I got the motors to work. Like I'm like, okay, I can, I can drive a MOSFET high and a MOSFET low, and make current flow through the motors. That was uh, uh, that was the easy part, right? The hard part is how do you know you only rotated once? How do you know you made sure that the motor only turned one rotation so that one product falls out of the machine, and we kind of back when we when I first started this product uh, project, I should say, we kind of guessed it was on current because basically what I did is I looked at how the motor was designed and, and it's got like a switch on it. And when you put your multimeter on it, you can detect a current drop every rotation. So you're like, OK, and then you look at the board, uh, the, the original board, and there's like an op amp and a, and a current sense resistor. It's like, okay, they're totally just like monitoring the current somehow. And when they detect that drop, that's a rotation. I really wonder why they went with that topology or that that method. Less wires. Uh, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to run another wire back for like a home switch for each, you know, you just you just have two wires for every motor, and then you know which yeah, position. Yeah, two wires for each motor. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Well, it's so when I started messing with it. I I I put onto my design a INA two one nine current sensor and a shunt resistor and all that good stuff. Well, I started reading in the data from it, and I'm like, I'm not seeing those pulses that I was seeing on my multimeter. Oh, there's no I'm edge. Like, oh, no. I'm like, oh, no. What's going <laughs> yeah, on Yeah, this here? is bad. Because <laughs> um, I was expecting like to see like when the switch is activated. Because it's, it's activated for like 10 degrees of the rotation. So I'm like, I'm expecting to see a big pulse or big yeah, and drop. Those, those, those motors don't turn very fast. No, they don't. Uh, it takes like eight, seven to eight seconds for them to rotate. So I'm like, I'm expecting this... Dr- this long drop and be able to read that. And I wasn't seeing anything. I wasn't seeing any drop like that. And I'm like, Oh no, this is not good. Uh So I took one apart, took one apart and I'll take a picture of this for the, uh, podcast notes, but inside of there, the switch on the back that gets actuated both outputs. So it's, it's, uh, it's a single pole, single throw momentary switch um the common is hooked up to power and then on the the downstream so the normally closed and normally open side are both connected to the high side of the motor 
There's no resistor in between. The resistor is across the motor. Hmm. And there's a diode uh, across the motor as well. And like there's a, a diode. Uh, yeah, there's a flyback basically. And then there's a, a diode for uh, reverse polarity protection. Um, and so the resistor is just there to snub, snub EMF, right? Uh, so I'm like, wait, what is go? How is this working? How does it detect <laughs> the rotation if both outputs of the switch go to the same thing? So what it does is when that switch activates, okay, there's a momentary break in the connection. This is a momentary zero current flow. No. Yeah, because because the micro switch. So when it trips, there's a make before break. It's a mechanical pulse delay. Yes. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Yeah. So when it when that's I, I say it's a break before make connection. Right. Right. So when it breaks, there's a drop in the current for like milliseconds. Yeah, Before however long it, it takes this, the arm to swing inside the swing switch. In, inside that switch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that long. <laughs> yeah, that long. Um, and so how I was reading this current uh, wasn't working because I was reading it too slow. My my interval was not fast enough to read that, that drop. Um, so I fixed it. I made an interrupt that ran i i had no idea how fast i had to actually go um so i basically made an interrupt that did i first started at 100 hertz that wasn't that fast enough i went up to a thousand that was fast enough <laughs> so somewhere <laughs> between I, those two values well basically i wanted to make sure i could capture the low two times in a, in a sequence yeah, right sure so i can capture a low low and and um that meant I was fast enough that I wouldn't never I would never miss a pulse. Because even if you miss one pulse. of those, you'd get the second one. No, 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 no. I'm saying is when it pulses low, I wanted to have two readings of that same pulse. Yeah, and a thousand Which times is fast enough, I guess. Fast enough to read that. Yeah. Plus, yeah, it's a thousand hertz. Um, so I use the timer interrupt at a thousand hertz. And then it just runs my, you know, I square C stuff to grab the data from the uh, sensor and all hunky dory. Huh? So what is a, cause I thought I was just gonna have to measure like a difference. This is totally like a totally a threshold problem. And so a better way to do this. So next revision, um, if there is one, there probably will be, cause we're going to bring snacky back next year. Um, is instead of a current sensor, op amp on a comparator, and just and that, then just trigger on basically if it's basically trigger on on no current basically, and then run that into a pin interrupt instead. I would almost do like a current latch, do like a flip flop that that goes yeah. high, and then you can read that, and you have a hardware flag that you could reset with your processor. Yeah, reset it. And then, uh, yeah, that that makes it that makes it a bit more. Uh, you can capture it, and you're just guaranteed. Yeah, guaranteed. Um, that circuit screams comparator, in my opinion. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, like when I saw that, I'm like, oh, I designed the wrong circuit to read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to have plenty of time to actually like read the the low, 
and like, no, it's it's super fast. And uh, I just got lucky that my that sensor is fast enough and I can get the data fast enough because it's like, what, eight kilohertz? How fast is I-score C? I think it's uh, like eight kilohertz. I can't remember anymore. I have to, I have to look up what the Arduino uh, I square C runs on on the mega. I think it's like eight kilohertz. Well, but, but, but you said that. you said one of the magic words there. You said capturing things fast and Arduino, and those two things yeah, usually don't go together, right? No, you're right, you're right, you're right. But it is fast enough, and I basically made sure that I sampled fast enough to capture. Um, oh yeah, Fa- Fabio in chat says 100 or 400 kilohertz. So I'm actually way off. Um, so yeah, it's, 400 kilohertz my, is like the fast I squared C or whatever they call that, right? Yeah, I think it's actually running the slow I I uh, I squared C. I bet you it is. Arduino is probably doing the 100 kilohertz. Yeah, but it's fast enough to get all the data and basically capture it correctly. Yeah. Yeah, sampling at eight kilohertz. Yeah, I'm sampling at a thousand hertz, so one kilohertz, and that's. It is fast enough. I'm not running into any overruns or anything like that. Um, and I can capture the pulse, the same it, pulse. It's reliable. I yeah, twice. I actually was testing it, and I, I never missed a pulse over 24 hours. So I'm like, okay, that's good enough. Yeah. Now, you actually get two pulses per rotation because there's one where the switch actuates and then a one where the switch deactuates. So you get oh, two low right, pulses. Right, right. And so I actually have another routine that's called. So when you call the vend command, um, you can also specify how many pulses to read. So you can do two or one. So one, because the one pulse, because you get a pulse and then there's a set period of time and then another pulse. And depending on if it's a short distance of time or a distance of time, length of time, <laughs> short length of time or a long length of time, you know where it is actually. So now you can actually do fancier stuff like set what phase the motor's at. Well, the, the phase within one pulse, like that's, that's, yeah, the, within that's one your pulse. resolution. Yes. You either set it on one pulse or the other pulse. Right, right, yeah. So it's like 10 degrees of, of variance that you right. set it on. Um, and so that's uh, that's what I was also thinking. I'm like, how do you even hone these things? That's how. Now, now you know, okay, I need a pulse. Wait for a short pulse. Or a short pulse. A short length of time for another pulse. And then I'm like, okay, now I know that's where my home position is. So I can either rotate one or three times to properly calibrate everything. Yeah, I, kinda, home I, everything. I, I could kind of see before you load whatever you're prize is into these things you could have it step every motor at home all of them yeah. and then you're in a known spot your known state yeah yeah now yeah. I, I already i already wrote a routine that does that yeah it just checks it on uh, on boot and you send it a a home command and it will step through each one and make sure each one's in the right position before you load um it doesn't do that when you first boot it up. It, you have to ask it to do it. Well, you wouldn't want it doing it on no. boot up because power cycle it just out all these everything. Yeah. yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Do you have the ability to reverse the motors and go backwards? Do not. Uh, okay, so yeah, if something goes wrong, you may have to reset the actual physical location of the things on the screw. Yeah. yeah. Now, so the um, on that, 
uh, because we're running on interrupts and we are relying on sensor feedback, mm. I did put in a timer lockout too. So it goes, okay, I basically did an average of how long does it take all these motors because each one's slightly different, right? So some take seven and a half seconds to fully rotate, some are eight seconds, some are um, six and a half seconds. It's all over the map. I'm like, okay, none of them exceed this one number. And I set that as the timeout. So when it times out, it actually will kill the power to all the motors because it's a relay. I can just cut all the power to the to the uh, motor drivers. And then it sends a command back to the host, the host basically, and says it's locked out, and it lets you and lets you know what the location that got locked out. It's it's the the tilt signal. Yeah, well, sure, you can call it <laughs> tilt. Basically, it's like, hey, I was supposed to vend this thing. It took longer for me to get the two pulses back. Right, something's, something's wrong. wrong. Yeah, something's wrong. I'm gonna lock out until. You tell me to unlock out. Like you can send a command to unlock it, but it's basically, hey, Parker, go show up to the location and figure out what's wrong with it. <laughs> Why is it taking too long? Go look at the logs. Um, uh, so yeah, I put that time out in there. Um, I can trigger it by basically like grabbing the motor and like stalling it out. So it does work really well. Uh, Fabio, um, Reverse the motor unvend. I really wish you could do that. The problem is there's a diode inside the motor, so you can only run them one way. Ah. You can't if you reverse polarity in the motor, you'll just short it. <laughs> no, no, no current flows because it's a diode. Oh, I got you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was yeah. thinking that was like a flyback diode where you just. Oh, there is a flyback, but there's also a in series diode. Yeah. Okay. That just prevents anything. From, I really wish you could unvend. <laughs> it's not oh, restock no. it's unvend <laughs> yeah unvend um and then i ran into on saturday so before getting all this done i was working with um bringing up all the other commands and stuff serial commands up and getting it to work with the uh leds because I have, I have serial addressable leds like uh i was using uh ws 2812s or otherwise known as Neo Pixels, which I think is like an Adafruit trade name for them. I think Adafruit has that. I think that's, I think that's right. who I think who coined that term. Um, and uh, I was running those and I was running into weird issues where I was losing serial packets. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. Something's going on here. I'm losing, basically I would send a command and the my my Skippy library, I say my uh, the Skippy library I was using um, would report, "Hey, unknown command," and I'm like, "Did I type it wrong?" So I'd like copy paste and like, "Yeah, it's coming back as unknown command." And uh, went into the library, and then I had it uh, print out like you know more debug stuff. And yeah, it was just like every so often you would like it would drop a character. Hmm. And you'd be like, well, yeah, it doesn't know what uh, what that command would be because nothing matches it, right? And um, trying to figure it out. And uh, what I realized is the NeoPixels, since they're one wire, they have really specific timing for 
the data. And the, uh, the Arduino Mega um, that's it's running the Mega, the AT Mega uh, 2560 microcontroller does not have DMA or uh, direct memory access. And so when it needs to clock out for WS2812, it's a blocking function and does not let it disables interrupts so it can properly clock that stuff out, that, that information out. Well, that's a problem when you have the one byte serial buffer problem that AVRs have. Because you only have one byte of serial buffer. So if you so if you disabled interrupts and you try to send in serial data at the same time, well, you don't have your serial interrupt there to address that information. So the buffer gets full and just just craps out. Lo- you just lose the characters. Right, that come it's after just gone, you. right? Yeah, it's just gone. And the computer doesn't know, right? <laughs> well, the computer just thinks something wrong happened. No, the computer doesn't know because serial's one way. Oh, right, right, right. No, I, yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't know. Um, it's just not getting anything back. Yeah, it doesn't get anything back. Um, the solution was I'm sw- I switched over to APA 102 or SK9822, which are the two-wire style, which has data and clock, because when you implement those, those are non-blocking. They don't, they, they don't, have, uh, they don't block the interrupts, and so you can have free reign over you can over clock the, them however uh, you want i suppose right i mean yeah, as long reason. as you don't exceed the time um too much like there's like how those work is when there's a lax in the clock is what is when they latch because there's no latch pin either so it's but it's like a long period of time right you just pause the clock and then they they yeah handle what they got they handle it yeah um so that works uh all I had to do, all I had to test that is I just switched NeoPixel to the, the APA 102s in the code, and that like un, unbricked my my problem, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. But this brings up the thing about the importance of full system integration testing. Of I tested all this stuff weeks ago, individually, and it, it all worked. I'm like, I'm like, I know the Skippy library works. I know that this NeoSensory uh, uh, NeoPixel thing is working. All this other stuff is working. I didn't do a full system integration check to make sure I didn't have any blocking uh, interrupts or anything like that. Like I did look at each library that I was using and made sure that they were using different timers for their interrupts and that kind of stuff. Like I made sure of that. And I made sure like they were using different pins and all that good stuff. But I didn't actually test them functioning in the same ecosystem, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's an important thing is to make sure that hey, uh, I had to actually do the next step, which is like write a little bit more firmware to actually make sure that hey, the serial at the same time as the LEDs, at the same time as the motor controllers, at the same time as the current sensor, at the same time as the real time clock or uh, real time clock, all function at the same time. I didn't do that part. Yep. And I, and I knew the thing is I knew better, <laughs> but I thought it was, I thought I did enough due diligence by going into the libraries and making sure I didn't have like peripheral conflicts. Like, you know, one library is using timer two and another one's also using timer two mm-hmm. for the, uh, like a uh, timer based interrupts. Like I made sure of that. And I thought that was going to be good enough. It was not in this case. 
is something we say at work. There's always something. And, <laughs> and that's, that's, it's just, it's always true. There is always something why your thing will not work or doesn't work right or yeah. it's yeah. whatever. And the only way you know that you've solved everything is if you test it like the whole yeah. thing. Whole thing. Yep. You're right. Yep. yep. Always something. You know, it's funny. This is a little bit of side tangent because you said it's a saying that you have at work. So Stephen has another saying. It is what it is. <laughs> and I love I love that saying. But I found like the most cursed version of that. Uh oh. It's what it's. Oh gosh. Yikes. With a with a apostrophe with, in yeah, it's multiple apostrophes. <laughs> yeah. It's what it's. Technically, that is correct English and the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Actually, so I say it is what it is enough at work that um, some of the other people there started making fun of me and they came up with another one and they say, and so it goes. And so Uh, it goes. (laughs) (laughs) And, and like, yeah, I'm, that is good. I'm the one who says it is what it is all the time, but everyone else says, and so it goes pretty much because i say that enough yeah, that's great though yeah <laughs> um so since i'm kind of talking about like if there's another if there's a revision to what would i do different um better ver- way of, of thresholding current sensor to read those pulses because that's just I, I think a pulse latch is is yeah the pulse latch so you yeah. can like address it and like reset it um, and have that on an interrupt pin. Um, super easy to do. That's way less processing overhead. The great thing is it's a mega 2560. Like the only downside to that thing is it's it's 8-bit and it has a DMA. It, oh, it doesn't have a DMA. It's like really the only downsides to them. The, they're plenty fast and they got so much. There's a lot of horsepower underneath that. But if, you do, if you're doing hardware latching, you don't have to rip so fast. No, 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 no. What yeah. I'm saying is I'm okay having to spend more horsepower on the current sensor. Oh, yeah. Your, your current application will work just fine. Yeah. Yeah. It works fine. It just in the future. Right. Um, but I would also switch to like a SAMD, AT Mega SAMD core, something that has a DMA. DMA so I can is run, magical. Yeah. So I can run the LEDs straight off of i'll probably keep the apa 102 style like the clock um the uh the clock style rgb serials uh leds but i just want to i'd like to have dma so i don't have to worry about that in my main processor at all mm-hmm. um so i'd probably go to like a samd uh you know a cortex m0 style processor next um just to kind of uh smooth that part over so to speak now why did i go with the 18 mega or the arduino megas this time because i had them in the drawer right here i was about to say time (laughs) time and i had them in a drawer already had the footprint done put down good go that Um, your entire board almost was uh, except for perhaps your ina 219 current sensor was all like pre-made footprints and pre-made parts yeah almost all of it was pre-made yeah, right. You can't. You cannot underestimate how important it is that once you have a library, that dictates a lot of design, <laughs> a lot of your work. Yeah, going forward. Yeah, it it um, 
it's really good at minimal viable products. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So actually, so uh, Roz, who's been on the podcast a handful of time, um, he and I are designing some products and we, uh, our first product, it took us, uh, you know, this isn't our full time job, but this is, you know, it took us maybe a year and a half to design this first product. And one of the reasons why is because we started our libraries from scratch because we were working together on a new system effectively. And, and so there's a lot of assets that were necessary to develop in order to say like, okay, oh, yeah. so we're okay with this. This is our standards kind of stuff. The second product that we, we cranked out was done in three months because the asset building is 90% of what we did the first time around. And then it's drag and drop after that makes, it it makes life so much easier. Once you have like a fully constructed library that you can trust God, how many times have we been through that? Like trusting your library and like my library, my library is, is for me and your library is for you. And I'm, I'm sure you trust yours and I trust mine. But like, if I hopped over to yours, I'd have so much learning to do. (laughs) about your library and the same would be true the other direction yeah yeah Yeah. um man we said that on the uh embedded fm podcast yeah it's 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 a different world from software like software you're like oh yeah i'm just gonna import that python library yeah like like you trust that it trusts in quotes that it's gonna work fine it comes down to compile times hardware is like a six-week compile time software is Two seconds. <laughs> You're right. Right. You can see that mo- that that footprint or that module is messed up really quickly, unless it's some like really weird latent bug. But then you know it probably works ninety nine percent of the time. You know, I wonder- like a footprint. Footprints either going to be working or I guess you could have a. I'm about to say footprints either good or bad, but you could have footprints that are good, but then have marginal fallout and like production oh which i guess yeah. is the same thing as a module that works 99 percent time and fails and yeah you're doing production case. testing and there's some weird edge case yeah yeah so hmm. interesting almost the same actually then when you when you boil it down yeah but yeah you know, but the compile time is is what That's it all what it all comes to yeah yeah we our libraries have to be as flawless as they can be. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Snacky is getting close. Um, I'll probably post pictures when I get the new LEDs installed. And so it's all running. I, I want to write more LED like patterns and stuff too, but that that's, that's MVP plus one. I'd, I'd love to see a short video of the vend command, even though like I know exactly what it does. I'd still yeah. love to see it. All right, yeah, yeah. I got to make a... I got to shoot some video for it this week, so I'll, sh- I'll share that with oh, you. Oh, is it like promotional video stuff? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love how there's like some some very secretive aspects of this, but then you talk about like the nuts and bolts, like e- you say everything about the yeah. nuts and bolts. <laughs> it, it depends. There's, there's like everything's open and then there's cliffs. There's like invisible walls. But the hardware is like open, but the software's not. Eventually the firmware will come out. You're yeah, gonna, when I release the board, I'll release the firmware. Oh, you, you're, you're going to release on like GitHub or something? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Sure. But it's like the project scope has like invisible walls that you I can't go through yet or oh, talk about. Well, yeah, y- yet. Yes. We'll see what the I'm future like a, holds. Like an engineer mime right now. <laughs> well, you know, I'm 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 hearing like like our listeners, I hear all of this in real time with you guys as well. So I'm trying to navigate this invisible minefield of what we can learn and what we can at the same time. (laughs) That's why I try to probe with as many questions as like, ah, what can we learn? Yeah. All right. So that's snacky for now. So I, uh, Parker's been working on snacking. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I got a little bit jealous and I, I needed a project to work on as well. So I've been doing some research on, uh, project diff probe, which I mentioned, I don't know, three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, something like that. Uh, which project diff probe was a, or is a project to create a differential probe for oscilloscopes, something that is small, but useful, something I can 3d print a little enclosure for on my little, um, 3d printer over here just something fun to knock out but something i could also use so i've i've been in the last few weeks been taking a uh, a little bit of time to do some research on it and i finally landed on the topology of the diff probe that i want because i found a handful of examples out there and and you know i i've been waiting to design your own well sort of i mean not not really. I mean, or did you just put all the designs into a bowl and just mix it together? Sort of actually. Uh, I, I, am pretty close to that. Basically I took a handful of designs that I really liked at, at least from what they claim they could do and mixed them together. And, and I'm changing a handful of things about them such that they meet my criteria, which my criteria is mostly take their designs and make them go further with them ah like expand expand upon them with with the least amount of work and what's nice is i've landed on one of them that i can expand the usable range on the probe from plus minus 400 volts to plus minus 1500 volts on the probe simply by changing the voltage rails on the op amps because previously on this on this one that i had i had found it ran it's all of its op amps on plus minus five volts. Well, there's nothing saying that if you, if you expand the range on the op amp rails, it can't just accept more voltage effectively and, and resolve more, more range. Barring the voltage ratings on all the other components. Correct. So that's the big thing. So basically I took the schematic from what I had found and I'm going to adapt all the voltage ranges of the components to accept or be able to handle that higher voltage range. And I'm adjusting the op amps because in this, I, from, from my applications, I don't need a probe that goes out to a hundred or 300 megahertz. I'm not doing fast stuff. I'm doing really slow stuff, high voltage. So if I have a probe that does 25 megahertz, that's, that's already way more than I need. Right, an order of magnitude more, or many two orders, orders of magnitude, magnitude more. more. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't need that kind of resolution. So, the nice thing is about that is I can use op amps that have a higher voltage power rail range, 
and sacrifice a little bit on their on their bandwidth and i don't care now i'm uh, that's not to say that i'm just going to put garbage op amps in this it's just i'm not going to spend ten dollars on a gigahertz processor or <laughs> sorry not processor op amp, op amp that has a a limited voltage range i'll just readjust things using um different op amps so the so the topology for most diff probes are is all basically the same thing and it's got three different portions to it on the front end you have your high voltage dividers which for your plus and minus uh connections to the probe you basically have huge voltage dividers on them that are just resistive with compensation capacitors and the compensation capacitors are basically there for your high frequency stuff and they start to matter a bit more in your you know when you're going out to the many megahertz range but effectively it's just large high voltage dividers on the on the front end now the uh the designs that i have i'm going to implement this as well They, they both include cmrr common mode rejection ratio comp uh calibration and offset correction so basically, the uh, the the high voltage dividers go to a trim pot that you're allowed that you can adjust, and that allows you to uh, adjust the common mode rejection ratio. So if both probes receive the same voltage, you can kind of tune that out and and get them to read zero when they're both reading the same voltage. And that's sort of a big design criteria for what i'm going with this with this because you know if say say i'm wanting to read a voltage across a small resistor and the common mode across that resistor is a thousand volts and i want to be able to read one volt across a thousand volts well i got to have a pretty decent common mode rejection ratio and there's a small trim pot on there that i can use like a 20 turn trimmer to be able to zero that out that there's also an offset uh, correction on there so you can apply a very small amount of voltage to only one leg of the uh, the input voltage dividers and you can offset any kind of offsets that exist within your um, your op amps that come later in the circuit so you c- basically it's allowing you to zero out the condition when you have common mode voltage across both probes and then also zero out whatever offsets appear due to whatever's occurring in the op amps your 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 offset voltages on its pins or whatever other offsets show up so that's the first section the front end is basically two giant high voltage dividers the second thing is two basically buffers it's effectively it's an instrumentation amplifier you use two op amps that have really ridiculously high input impedance uh you buffer those signals and then that gets sent off to the third portion of a diff probe which is basically your differential stage yep. so it just i'm looking at your schematic right now yeah it basically just takes the difference between those two yep. sides and applies whatever gain you need it to so in these in this probe design i'm going to have it have two different uh gain options and and by gain we're actually talking about attenuation here so we're talking about a a 10x or a 100x probe so negative gain negative gain uh, which negative gain is still gain. That's that's something that I think people perhaps get wrong. Uh, if if your gain is a decimal, it's still gain, right? So uh, 10x and 100 It does make the number smaller. It does make it I'll, smaller. I'll, 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 I want to debate this a little bit. It, it's a gain between zero and one, right? Yeah, but that's what attenuation is. Yeah, correct. G- gain of zero and one is, okay. is attenuation. Gain plus one is 
amplification. Is this is this is this a like a a, a square is also a rectangle? What I think we're arguing about right here. What it is is gain is defined by an equation, and what that equation does has two different terms depending on its conditions. So gain is if the gain is zero to one, it's attenuation. If the gain is above one, it's amplification. It's okay, but it's all still called gain, right? Okay, gotcha. gotcha. It's, I think I think that is that is when mathematics takes over terms right yeah <laughs> but 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 in general i feel like gain sounds like you're gaining something it yeah, sounds like yeah. more right? okay I, I see what you're saying but gain it, is a change i guess yeah, it's right. a multiplication a change. factor um what happens if you have negative gain it's gain with a negative symbol in front of it yeah <laughs> that's still more of a of a uh mathematical trick i suppose yeah i guess that's inverting it's inverting right okay yeah inverting but like signal. if you invert a signal it can still the signal's still big or it, it well, oh yeah, yeah. It depends or, or you got i'm just saying is if you thought of a negative gain it'd be inverting whatever signal it is and then applying that attenuation or amplification right right yeah, yeah. so in a diff probe it's basically all attenuation because we're trying to take massive signals and make them readable on the back end. So if yeah. you have a common mode of say a thousand volts, uh, well, or, or not, let's not even say a common mode. Let's say your common mode is like 500, but then you're reading 500 volts swing on top of a 500. I don't know that application, but let's just say you were doing that. Uh, you would, you would need to be able to fit that within the op amp power rails right so you yeah. have to gain it down and and or gain it down see there's there's the attenuated you have to attenuate it and you're you're already doing the attenuation on the front end via resistive divide division i guess mm -hmm. uh but but at the same time you're still controlling gain afterwards to be able to see whatever range is useful for your oscilloscope your scope yeah so so a 10x attenuation from most scopes, you can do 10x and still get moderate resolution. 100x gets a little bit more difficult, but it's still generally reasonable. I, from my analog scopes, I could I could do 10x just fine. 100x might be a little bit a little bit tough, uh, but but our uh, our digital scopes at work, I think I could do 100x and still have plenty of resolution. Resolution. Room see see the signal you need to see right exactly so i want to have a switch on this thing that i could switch between 10x and 100x uh just depending on whatever the application is so in in the the two second portions of the circuit which is the uh the buffer I guess one sections. thing you need to make um so i guess yeah. one thing you need to make sure is that if you switch that switch you don't blow up your your scope well, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about it is, if you flip that switch, you're just uh, you're just gonna oh, you're just, you're just gonna smaller. rail out your op amps. Oh, yeah, oh, that's true too. Yeah, you just you just rail out your op amps, and uh, okay, so but, you know, depending on what power I'm, I'm running my op amps on, which I think I've I think I'm probably gonna go with 15 volts. It'd be a distortion probe at that point. You just get a square wave, you know. So uh, <laughs> my my analog scope has a 400 volt input max and uh you know this diff probe you know 
if if you're well outside of its boundary range, it'll just output 15 or negative 15 volts. That's <laughs> plenty within range. So actually, the, the, the fun thing is this diff probe, its output isn't going to be its limiting factor. It's its input that is going to be the limiting hmm. factor on it. But even then... The, the the limiting factor on that will be the voltage rating of the actual components themselves because the so the the input voltage division is about what 20k and 4 meg mm-hmm. so what is that it's a 0. 0.005 voltage divider basically so in order to overcome the 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 voltage or or to cause damage to the 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 diff probe you'd have to put in an ungodly large voltage to be able to cause the uh basically diodes on the op amps the input buffers to conduct whatever those esd diodes are on that you yeah I, i'm Which just a couple guessing, kilohertz i'm just guessing no probably like probably like, probably like 10 kilovolts uh, is what yeah. i'm i'm just guessing right now i don't know but but it's well, well, well beyond anything I'm going to be looking at. And, and whatever the, the voltage rating of the actual input resistors that are part of the voltage divider, th- those are going to be the limiting factor. You probably burn those up first. So, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, I should know all of these things. I just don't even possess anything that could put out that much voltage to actually I'm imagining Steven's going to he's going to build it and then walk out into a thunderstorm <laughs> yeah. and wave it in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> that might damage it. Yeah, that might damage it. Might damage you too, but, you know, who's a judge? Yeah. So, so in other words like the the what it would take to actually cause damage to this thing is so beyond anything any ability I have to actually create those kinds of conditions so i'm i'm not particularly worried about that so the 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 thing though is i don't really want to use the op amps that are in this reference design that i'm working at so i've i've sort of come up with some design parameters to uh, fit within what i'm looking for so the op amps first of all i need them to have an extended voltage range so the the op amps that were in the reference design they had rails of plus minus five volts that's not enough for me i need them to go at least 10 volts or beyond i'd love to run them on 12 to 15 volts 15 preferable and and in all reality with the calibration points that are inside this thing i could probably get away with not so great op amps but i would love to get the best op amps i can given the parameters that i'm looking at Mm -hmm. so they need to have very very low input bias current because any input bias current that goes into the buffers shows up as an error from the probes because the, the that input bias current has to come from somewhere and it's yeah, going to come from, from your whatever signal. you're measuring, right? Yes, it's from your signal. It's from your signal, so that will cause a problem. So low input bias current, it, you know, if I can get down into the the, the picoamp range, that usually points towards like JFET style input mm-hmm. op amps. That would be that would be great. The next thing is low offset. That's not as much of a problem because I can calibrate it out. But you have an low, offset calibration. Trim pot. Right. But the lower offset I have, the more accurate I can actually make that offset calibration and mm-hmm. the less sensitive it is to turning of the trim pot. So it may, if you get op amps that already have low offset, that means you have to do less work to, to calibrate them off and it becomes easier. So that's one of the other uh, criteria. The, ne- the last criteria, which is funny because it seems to be 
you know, the, the higher criteria for most of these designs is bandwidth. I don't need as much bandwidth, but sort of in the hierarchy of what I'm looking for is low input bias current, low offset, and then the highest bandwidth I can get, you know, within reason without spending $80 per hop. Amp. You know what's missing in here? What's that? You already have the footprint designed. That should be number one. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> you know, at that point, it would just be whatever garbage jelly bean op amp that's out there. <laughs> well, okay, so this is a situation where, of course, I would make, you know, if 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 an op amp had a unique you know, landing pad, I would obviously make one for it because the op yeah, amp yeah, would yeah. drive that. But op amps are so generic that I bet you I can just find one in a SYC or, or a TSOP package or whatever and be yeah. done with it. Uh, so those three things are really important for the buffer amps. Now the diff amp has a little bit different. So, so the two buffer amps feed into the diff ramp uh, and, and it has a little bit of a different, requirement first of all low offset is is really important but capable of driving a 50 ohm load is is the next thing that is more important for that because you the the whole purpose of these diff probes is that they drive 50 ohm loads into your into your uh your op amp oh no i'm sorry into, into your scope yeah so slightly different in that case that's actually a little bit easier to find if you ask me um, to find that capability. In fact, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, regardless, all, all of those op amps need to have the higher voltage power rails. Um, and generating those rails is the next kind of hurdle beyond that. So if I want plus minus 15, now I got to make some switchers that are a little bit more aggressive than doing the plus minus five. But yep. the whole, maybe not the whole, but, but, one large aspect of how large of a voltage range you can look at on the input is dictated almost entirely by two things, just whatever your op amp power rails are and whatever your voltage division is on the front end. And all of the designs I was looking at, I can just push the, the op amp voltage rails wider and just get a bigger range. So that's sort of the, the number one, change that i'm applying to things i can i can drag and drop a lot of the other stuff but for the most part it's it's the exact same schematics i just get to pick the characteristics of every part i'm not using any of the bombs the schematics state state the same so got a, got a stupid idea yeah what's that for your power supply because these have to be they have to be powered they're active probes i guess next sense yeah 100 percent. 10 coin cells just just run the entire thing battery operated off of 10 coin cells 10 coin cells five for your negative rail five for your positive rail because they're three <laughs> volts each just make j j big stacks of, of coin cells big stacks of them or put 10 holders on it like and vertical holders and just slot them in okay well maybe okay so there was one other criteria i, I sort of mentioned it earlier i want to be able to print an enclosure for this on my 3d printer which does not have a massive print bed. And in fact, one thing that would be really cool is to be able to hold this diff probe. Maybe mm. that's not as cool if there's a thousand volts on it. Maybe you don't want to <laughs> hold it. <laughs> I haven't gotten that far yet, but I'd love to be able to fit the whole board into a clamshell case that comes together. Okay, yeah, that screws together. And, and together. One, of, one of the thoughts was it would be really cool 
if I so if I had a resistor on a PCB, if this probe already had its two legs such that I could just touch them on the resistor and be able to measure across a resistor, but that resistor, but that resistor's floating at 500 volts, uh, so I could measure if I know the value of the resistor, I can just see the current flowing on my scope. That would be really yeah. uh, legit. So that's sort of where my mind's going with this right now. What what could be cool is to have interchangeable heads on the on the end mm-hmm. of the probe, and maybe one of them is two alligator clips, and then one of them is like a resistor reader that goes across it. I yeah, I haven't I haven't gotten that far in the design yet. It has ant antennas? Yeah, antennas. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. or even ooh, it'd be it almost be cool to have two um, pogo pins that you could like push into uh, some holes or something like that. Well, they make they make tweezers mm-hmm. that are that have tips on it that. Or that go to different probes that yeah. are kind of for that. And you can easily make that your resistor ridger sensor. Yeah. Sniffer, the resistor sniffer. <laughs> yeah. So um, there's one other th- uh, aspect about this that I love this because I have been trying to come up with a design to use a part that I've wanted to use for a long time. And I, I've just needed a project to use this part purely because I want to use the part and I finally have found one that is perfect for this. So in the diff amp at the very end of the circuit, you have to apply some gain to things because you basically gain it down and then you, you slightly gain it up to get your, your diff amp. Uh, and, and there's, I found a long time ago, some on, on Mauser, I was searching resistor networks and I found a resistor network that you could pick the ratio of resistors inside of this network. And one of the nice things about it is all of these resistors are basically printed on the network itself. So they have really, really excellent characteristics for temperature coefficient uh, and for tolerance. So I found the Vichy ACAS 0612 Precision Resistor Network. If you look that up, there's a whole family of these things. And basically, it's quads of 0603 style resistors all on one substrate. And if you use those as inputs and feedbacks on op amps, you can get some really, really excellent gain setting resistors on them. The ones I'm looking at have relative, well, they have absolute tolerance of 0.1%. So they're already really good, but the resistors on the substrate have relative tolerance of 0.05%. So just like ridiculously well matched resistors, but they also have a worst case relative tempco of 15 PPM. So if this thing heats up, the nice thing is all the resistors heat up at the same time so they don't change relative to each other and their, uh, I guess, initial tolerance relative to it's each other tight. is 0.05. So I'm looking at the data sheet for it and they actually have like 25 PPM, 15 PPM, and 10 PPM yeah. um, versions of these. But look at the test procedures and requirements, which is on page six. They have different things are testing that, but one is like different environments, like rapid change in temperature or like damp heat. So like Houston weather. Yep. Soupy. Um, short term overload. Like these are, these are pretty well tested. Uh, They're also really, uh, um, what is it? Uh, gosh, I can't think of the word. Uh, they, they, they resist humidity really well, which yes, 
for my application <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous but like i said i've been trying to find a reason to use one of these things because i think they're so cool and i found one that you can get um it's a quad package and it has two 10k resistors and two 20k resistors in it and if you connect those up on the diff amp you can get a diff amp that has a gain of two uh and has like this ridiculously good relative tolerance between the resistors. So I'm going to use one of those. It's also kind of fun to have an op amp that has one resistor package and you get all of your gains set uh, yeah. by that. So I finally, it's taken me like years. Like I knew one day I would find something that uses, <laughs> utilizes one of these. And this that was in your, that was in your part Rolodex. Yep. 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 And, and I do not have a footprint for the design for these yet. Oh, so you got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to that though. So I think, uh, I think all said and done, these diff probes will actually be fairly inexpensive to make. So I'm, I, I might make a few of them just because, uh, they are convenient to have around. And, you know, other than the fact that they have, you know, pretty heavy attenuations, I have a few applications that could make them really useful. And if I had multiple, I could actually use a few at, you know, at the same time because my mm. applications are not just reading one thing with high voltage differential it's multiple at the same time so i think there'll be it'll be a fun little project to throw together oh for sure i guess we need to wrap up this podcast then. yeah we're about an hour in on two pro uh two uh topics yeah yeah so uh, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you. Yes, you are listener for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack. Steven and I and almost 700 other engineers just like you hang out there every day.